0: Welcome to the TCW Investment Perspectives Podcast. I'm Anisha Goodley, head of the Emerging Markets Portfolio Specialist Team at TCW. I'm here with Blaise Anton, head of TCW's EM Sovereign Research Team. Blaise has been at TCW for over 20 years and is the lead sovereign analyst for Emerging Europe. Prior to joining TCW, Blaze was a managing director at the G7 Group, a political economy consultancy in Washington, D.C. Today, we're going to spend some time on the latest developments in Russia and Ukraine, particularly in light of recent escalation, as well as broader opportunities in Europe that have been created as a result of the war. Blaze, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Since we originally recorded this podcast, there was a pretty significant event in Russia with the Wagner troops marching on to Moscow. We felt it was prudent to jump back on with Blaze to get his latest views and key takeaways from those events. And then following that, we'll get back to our broader views on emerging Europe. So the events in Russia and the manner in which the crisis has de-escalated has raised some really important questions about Russia's domestic political stability and the war with Ukraine. What are some of your key takeaways from this weekend?
1: Well, it's a great set of questions and and one and, and questions that are not so easy to answer at this point. I think because in we don't really have all of the information. In fact, may never have all of the information. I think what we can say is that the events of the weekend, whether we call them a mutiny or a coup attempt, were the most significant challenge to Vladimir Putin in his nearly 25 years in power in Russia. Putin's autocracy has suffered a significant blow in prestige and authority. Uh, his hold on power looks less certain than ever before. The Wagner forces marched almost unchallenged from the Ukraine border to within 150 miles of Moscow in barely 24 hours. And then while Prigozhin and Wagner turned around on Saturday evening and began heading back towards Ukraine, the very mild initial response from Putin and the deal that seems to have been brokered for the turnaround and the de-escalation suggests that Putin didn't really have the kind of control or feel the kind of certainty that uh, he has attempted to project for most of his time in power. This has created a lot of uncertainty, not only about the relationship between Putin and Wagner and um, the various uh, national security elites in Russia, but it's also raised questions about domestic politics in Russia, and of course about Russia's ability to um, prosecute its war in Ukraine. i happy to talk about any or all of those. Um, because it really is a a fluid situation still and and, and very complex.
0: So, Blaze, thanks for that intro, because I do have a bunch of follow-up questions as a result. So, first, what's interesting is that the market impact of all of this was fairly limited, and we could say that part of the reason is because this happened over a weekend. But how should investors really think about pricing in the longer-term market implications of what happened?
1: Very difficult. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. This was a weekend event. I mean, obviously, there's a lot that's still not known, but the, uh, the the main events occurred over the weekend. There were no market reactions. And when the markets reopened on Monday, because there was a lot of confusion about what happened and what is happening, I, I don't think we saw really almost any repricing at all. Most of the market risks uh, that we focus on are really tail risks. You know, for the most part, over the last 17 months since the war began, Uh, markets, whether they're in Eastern Europe or global markets, have managed to sort of ring fence uh, the war and move on. And so, you know, the tail risks, I I think, are the same, although perhaps a bit more concerning given the uncertainties in Russia. You know, we don't think there's a high probability, and I don't think any of the experts do, that there is a, a likely deployment of a Russian tactical nuclear device, for example, inside of Ukraine. But obviously, You know if putin were at risk of losing power and and the the war was going badly i think people still have to think about that as a, a possible low probability scenario you know i think somewhat more likely would be destabilizing cyber attacks against the west we've had any number of smaller cyber attacks but something bigger and more impactful potentially by russia and then finally there is some risk albeit very low in our opinion of an actual direct military attack against european countries Maybe uh, not a NATO member, but it's it's hard to know. These are all tail risks. I don't think markets are very good at pricing them, and I think the markets will stay focused on the macro and on and really, you know, in terms of the war, monitor what's happening, but really struggle to price it in any effective way.
0: How does Ukraine take advantage of this domestic turmoil in Russia? Yeah, specifically on on the turmoil in Russia and the impact on
1: Ukrainian strategy, you know, the the withdrawal of the Wagner forces from the Ukraine theater is important. Um, They've been the most effective fighting force that the Russians have had. On the other hand, though, the counteroffensive that Ukraine has initiated uh, some weeks ago is really focused on the south and southeast of the country, and Wagner was not operating there. Those are regular Russian army battalions uh, that are dug in, and that's how the, the where the fight will be concentrated going forward. But I do think that Ukraine senses that the the uh, the discombobulation that's emerged in Moscow in the last week creates a bit of an opportunity. They don't know, you know, whether top-down command will be less effective going forward, but certainly I think they're going to try to push and probe to see if some of the top-down communications with the troops in the field has been altered by what's happened. I think also the Ukrainians um, are turning now uh, to their partners in the West and saying, look, um, this is a moment when we really need to, to move dramatically and boldly, and I think we're going to see a significant ramp up in the counteroffensive in the next couple of months. And, and I think we'll see continued pledges of uh, military and financial support for Ukraine, more pledges of significant hardware, so that they can try to drive the Russians back as far as possible towards Crimea in the coming months. This is certainly what the Ukrainians are pushing for. And of course, their success or lack thereof on the battlefield will have a big impact on how much support and the, the pace of support that comes from the West going forward
0: that's an important point about increased support for Ukraine from NATO and the U.S. But then how do you think about actually the China-Russia relationship in light of these recent events?
1: China and Russia have had a strategic partnership since early 22. That's when they declared it with great fanfare. Russia invaded Ukraine very soon thereafter, uh, perhaps catching China a bit off guard. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the strategic partnership remains. China's relationship goes beyond any single leader in Russia obviously the she putin relationship is a tight one they have met more times than she has met with almost any other leaders and and they continue to meet really the only foreign leader who putin has met with and and spoken to consistently uh, since the start of the war we think that the relationship is motivated by their joint opposition to a system of global institutions that, that they perceive as being controlled by the us and its g7 allies so We see the strategic partnership holding, but uh, we anticipate that China will continue to be cautious about providing lethal weapons to Russia, uh, the kinds of weapons that could trigger secondary sanctions. China has not done that to this point. The G7 has made very clear that would be a severe event and escalation from the G7 perspective, and and China continues to show little interest in in taking that step.
0: Thanks, Blaise. And how do you think about the CE policy response to the war? Well,
1: it's a, it's a great question, and it really depends on where you are. It's a different set of policy tools and policy responses we've seen if you're in Eastern Europe, a newer member state of the EU, for example, or if you're in the former Soviet space, like a Kazakhstan or an Azerbaijan. In all cases, a bit dif- difficult, given the timing of the war's beginning in February of 22, to disaggregate the policy response we saw directly to the war and the policy response that was coming out of COVID, because in a sense they kind of blended into each other. You know, we had a ton of stimulus from COVID in 20 and 21 that was starting to be pulled back at the time the war began in February of 22. Uh, and then it became impossible to pull those, those, that stimulus back. And so in the case, in all in the case of the entire region, we had significantly looser fiscal policy in 22 and 23 than markets had anticipated and that we'd been guided to expect. The EU changed its rules to allow EU member countries to basically continue deviating from long-time fiscal rules that they have until 2024. And, of course, all countries took advantage of that. Uh, we also saw a big increase in inflation across the region. There was an additional you know, shock to commodity prices and, and more uh, supply chains that were, that were interrupted because of the war. This saw inflation spike dramatically um, across the region. Many countries had above 20% inflation. Most everyone had inflation in emerging Europe. Uh, at least in the high teens at the peak, and this forced central banks into an aggressive tightening cycle, um, which, of course, leads to a number of knock-on effects of, of their own.
0: How far are we along in those hiking cycles?
1: Yeah, I think the hiking cycle is basically done across the region. In fact, we've just begun to move into an easing cycle by central banks, which is always a point where fixed income becomes pretty interesting. And I think that's likely to intensify over the coming 6 to 12 months. Right now, we only have a couple of central banks that are easing. But so far, the the evidence suggests that their easing cycles are going down well with investors. And I, I think the coming easing cycle over the next year or two uh, will also likely uh, uh, go down well with fixed income markets in the region.
0: Let's spend a little bit more time on that. Because as you know, of course, Russia was removed from the fixed income indices last year. So what kind of opportunities are you seeing now? in Europe?
1: You know, I think um, let, let's let's break the region into basically two, three groups. Uh, there's the Eastern EU countries, the newer member states of the EU, like Poland and Hungary and Romania, for example. Then there's the the big commodity producers in the former Soviet space that are not Russia. So Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan, to name the two most prominent. And then there's a number of smaller EM index countries in the Caucasus regions, like Georgia and Armenia, where uh, they've benefited in, in other sort of unexpected ways. From the war, on the on the side of the Eastern European countries that are in the EU, you know, I think, I think the uh, the opportunity set that arose as a consequence of of the war and the huge spike we saw in interest rates, as well as the sell-off in currencies um, and the aggressive central bank tightening that um, had to. Occur in response to the inflation spike left us in a place with very high nominal rates, the kind we haven't seen in, in really two decades in much of that region. So, you know, bond yields in some cases well above 10% in local currency, bond spreads in hard currency that were considerably wider than anything we'd seen for a long time. Obviously, that's attractive because many of those countries, basically all of those Eastern EU countries are investment grade. And so when you compare apples to apples to other, you know, investment grade, similarly rated sovereigns around the world, you saw sort of attractive yield levels, nominal yield levels, and the outlook for attractive real yields as inflation was expected to come back down and it is now doing in much of that region. So, you know, I think the both on the credit side and on the local currency side, there was a lot of price discovery occurring at levels that People in this industry hadn't seen in a long, long time in the space. Further to the east, you know, in the FSU and the former Soviet space, Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan became uh, countries of huge interest for the West. Obviously, Russian energy uh, was basically blocked off through sanctions and counter-sanctions. You know, Russian oil exports to Europe have basically gone close to zero. Russian gas exports have tumbled dramatically since the war began, and Europe obviously had to source energy from other places, part of that, part of the, the the answer to where to find other energy was in the former Soviet Union. So Kazakhstan, for example, has seen significant increase in FDI interest from from Europe, from from the rest of the world generally. And, and so, you know, we, we have a significant scope for a new and improved and increased flow of energy, especially oil and gas from Kazakhstan to the European Union area and at high prices, right? I mean, the war also drove up commodity prices. So these countries are exporters of something that the world really needs and they are specifically a potential source of important oil and gas um, for the next five 10 15 years for a region the you know one of the world's most important economic regions Europe which is basically now cut off from from its traditional Russian energy partners um, Azerbaijan, a similar story um, its oil outlook is not quite as upbeat as, as as its gas outlook but but the reality is we see significant investment beginning to go in not just to um, greenfield but also into improving and most importantly improving the transportation infrastructure the pipelines that that need to connect Kazakh Azerbaijani energy to the west i think that will be an important driver of growth for those countries going forward
0: blaze let me pick up on that last sentence about growth because emerging europe was has been in a technical recession. So when you think about just the longer term opportunities, what do you also think on the growth front?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the war, as I said, was a shock and it disrupted supply chains. It caused significant increases in inflation, which which are the kinds of levels of inflation that are pretty distortionary for regular business decision making, for investment in particular. So, you know, there has been There was this fall off, you know, we saw, you know, basically technical recession uh, show up in Europe in the fourth quarter and the first quarter um, that we've just come through. Every country with slightly different numbers and some did not go into recession. But as a region, clearly there was a real weakening in growth, uh, despite the strong fiscal support coming from the countries themselves, as well as from from Europe, from Brussels, a range of stimulus policies that have been coming from there. You know, going forward, I, I think as inflation falls uh, and as central banks uh, begin to ease monetary policy again, you know, we'll be looking at uh, you know a, a number of opportunities where countries will be able to gradually ramp back up um, their investment, especially in the private sector space. You know, the the EU members who rely significantly on fund flows from Brussels to support their overall growth and investment story. You know, there is some differentiation there. Some of them have very good relations with the EU. Others have uh, frostier relations. That does affect the flow of funds. But in all cases, EU money does flow, does support this growth story. And the combination of that with lower interest rates domestically, you know, should, uh, I think, support domestic demand in the uh, in the coming quarters.
0: Blaze, let me ask you something else when we just think about the shifting growth dynamics in Europe, there have been about 1 million Russians that have left since the war started. Where have they gone? And is that creating any sort of growth opportunity?
1: It's a really interesting question. I mean, it's not unusual that that war creates refugees. Um, these are not quite refugees. They're people who are unhappy with their own country's policies and have decided to leave the country for one reason or another. It is probably more than 1 million. They're spread out. But disproportionately, they've gone to parts of the former Soviet Union which would take them. So Kazakhstan, Armenia, Georgia, and these are especially the latter two, countries with quite small populations and and relatively small economies. These Russians have shown up with money. They've shown up with entrepreneurial experience. uh, And we've seen a lot of them going to work in the IT space and other service sector Work, value-added work, which um, has clearly benefited growth and external balances in in these countries. I think economic growth is likely to be quite fast, unlike Eastern Europe, where there was recession, you know, as a consequence of the war. You know, we're seeing extraordinarily strong growth rates in these Caucasus republics, for example, and growth in Kazakhstan has also been supported. Uzbekistan has also been supported by the inflow of these of these people. Whether they go back in the long run. Hard to know. Part of it will be dictated by how the war evolves um, and ends. Obviously, to a great extent, they're sort of political exiles. You know, historically, many such people never go back until, or don't go back for many, many years, if ever, because it depends on regime changes in their, in their country of origin. I would say, in the base case, we should expect countries in the former Soviet Union to continue to benefit from uh, this flow of people for the medium term. And these are, again, people who can support... Uh, new forms of economic activity, which were perhaps underinvested and underdeveloped in the, in these countries where they've arrived um, over time. So it's a, it's an interesting opportunity for them.
0: Blaze, thanks so much for joining us today. Lots of really important information here, and we'll continue to monitor the situation. For everyone listening, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out. And if you would like to join our distribution list, of course, reach out as well. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Anisha.
2: Thank you for joining us today on TCW Investment Insights. For more insights from TCW, please visit tcw.com insights. This material is for general information purposes only and does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. TCW, its officers, directors, employees, or clients may have positions in securities or investments mentioned in this publication, which positions may change at any time without notice. While the information and statistical data contained herein are based on sources believed to be reliable, we do not represent that it is accurate and should not be relied on as such or be the basis for an investment decision. The information contained herein may include preliminary information and or, quote, forward-looking statements, end quote. Due to numerous factors, actual events may differ substantially from those presented. TCW assumes no duty to update any forward-looking statements or opinions in this document. Any opinions expressed herein are current only as of the time made and are subject to change without notice. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.